The Madness of March is officially here, so this week we're looking back on my conversation with Hall of Fame NCAA coach Mike Krzyzewski, known by fans worldwide as Coach K. He shares stories from his childhood. Not only had I stolen the money, but I had lied about it. Describes his relationships with future NBA stars. You have to relate to them in the way that they deserve to be related to, but where they also know this is bigger than them. And opens up about his closest friendships. He said he finds you to be, hands down, the most direct person he's ever met in his life. And actually, on that front, one of the most memorable phone calls I've ever received before was from John Mack, the then chairman of Morgan Stanley, who, unbeknownst to me, up until days before the interview, I found out was close friends with Coach K. I find John Mack's email address just on Google, send him an email, and five minutes later, I get a call from the chairman of Morgan Stanley. Ends up spending an hour with me on the phone saying, you got to ask Coach K this. You got to give Mike crap about that. And it made all the difference in the world. Then when I sat down with Coach K, him knowing we just spent an hour on the phone with Mac the night before. With that having been said, we dive right into my 2010 chat with the five-time national champion by getting his thoughts on leadership and the importance of honesty at an instant. I guess the first question would simply be, you've always said you loved leading, right. which is why you ultimately decided to become a coach. What about leading do you love? Well, I think leading is uh, its the most dynamic thing that you could do and the most exciting thing you can do, whether it be in business, your own family, a church, a team, uh, because it's constantly changing and the, the reason it's constantly changing is because people are constantly changing and cultures are constantly changing and so there you can never learn everything there is to know about leading and it's very exciting and it, uh, you get to the core of who people actually are and then if you can get all those people to work together for a common cause that's like the, the best thing in the whole world. I mentioned, uh, I spoke to John Mack, and he told me that you've made him become a more direct person, and actually <laughs> that you gave him advice preceding a speech he gave about the financial crisis to Wharton Business School, and he credits that with being the best speech he's ever given. What advice have you given to well, John Well, I'm Mack? not sure how much advice I've given John Mack. He and I are very close friends. and. Uh, uh, I think one of the things, you know, I always tell him is he, he has a great presence. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a powerful guy, obviously very smart and, and quick-witted. And, uh, but at times when you're a leader and you're, you're in that top office, you sometimes can lose touch in how you know, direct you might have to be and, and how to be direct. And, uh, you know, with, with that particular situation, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like uh, just tell them the truth in the way that you, uh, that, in the way that it happened. And it'll just come out the right way and, and, and do it in your, own, in, in your own style. And, you know, John did an amazing thing uh, to save his company. And uh, that's the reason the speech went well, not because of any advice uh, that was given. The outcome was pretty darn good. 
He, he said he finds you to be hands down the most direct person he's ever met in his life. To what extent, if any, do you find that surprising? No, well, because he hasn't met himself. You know, uh, <laughs> he's pretty direct too, which is good. You know, basically, John and I are really good friends because we all, we truly believe that you should look someone else in the eye, the other person in the eye, and tell the truth all the time. In other words, the truth at an instant, not a minute later or an hour later or when it's convenient, but the truth, whether it be, boy, you look good, or, you know, you don't look good. You know, we got to do something about this. And, but to have a relationship with that person so that they will accept the truth. If you don't communicate ever with that person and then all of a sudden you don't look good, Man, that's a rude thing to say, you know. But if you know them, like you, just, you don't look good right now. And here's what we're going to do about it. That type of thing. And and uh, John and I have talked about how to communicate, why that's important. And in his business, he needs the truth right away. And certainly in mine, I need it. I need it right away. Speaking of being direct and telling the truth, regardless of how, I guess, brutally honest it might be. The first date you went on with <laughs> your wife, uh, did you really tell her that she was your third option in the first two girls? Well, there's, it's a longer story than that. Uh, I mean, I didn't come out and say, by the way, Mickey, you know, you're, <laughs> but I was a cadet. I was, uh, you know, we, we have an honor code, you don't lie, cheat, or steal. Now there is what they call social honor, where, you know, if you're at someone's home, and it's not a good meal where you don't say, you know, ma'am, that was a horrible meal. And you say, you know, thank you very much for the good meal. And, but as we were on the date, I, I, I felt guilty for some reason. And I just said, it wasn't like in bravado or anything, like you're the third option. I said, I just want, want you to know this is how this happened. And, and you felt guilty because she didn't know that, that she was she the didn't third know option? That. And, uh, uh, but the third option was the best option. In other words, uh, it doesn't mean she was third best. It, was, it took me until the third to get the best. And anyway, did I, I think I got out of that all right. You, your wife once said, and I quote, I heard a voice, thought he was on the phone, but then heard the words and thought, who is he talking to like that? I peeked in and he's standing looking in the mirror, just cussing himself out. You dumb, on and on and on, called himself a compromising son of a... Bucket, yeah. Why? Well, yeah, I think it's probably during the, uh, a time in coaching where I took a course of action where I compromised, and uh, and I didn't. And uh, who tells me when I'm wrong? I mean, the press may try to do that, but a lot of times they're wrong and tell me what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> Uh, given suggestions, but everyone, you, know, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. And sometimes, I mean, I don't do that every day, or else I'd be, I wouldn't be coaching. I'd be someplace else where people would be taking care of me. Uh, but the uh, uh, just, it was kind of revving yourself up. Sometimes before I give a speech, uh, you know, I'm doing a, a speech for a, a conference or a business or you know some type of gathering and to get myself motivated, like you're gonna be good. You know, this is gonna go well. You're gonna be strong. And then when you're looking in the mirror, you can see yourself strong. I need to show a strong face. 
And it, you know, I guess when she heard me do that, it was at a time where, like, don't do that anymore, knucklehead. You know, like, you can't compromise. You know, and it was kind of to get myself built up because I probably had to do something strong that day that was a little bit against the grain of what I had been doing, and uh, just for motivation. And that was several years ago, I believe. To what extent do you, will you beat yourself up as bad now well, I, as I, you yeah, may have I, done I don't know if it's earlier. beating yourself up. It's being honest with yourself. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean you have to verbally say it in the mirror, but at times, as a leader, uh, you need to reflect. You, you, you shouldn't just do. So, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? What's my plan for tomorrow? The night before, I'm thinking of that. You know, sometimes I'll wake up during the night and, be, and wake up with an idea because I went to bed thinking of my plan. You know, at the end of the day, to critique yourself, how did my plan go? You know, uh, and so you're, you know, you're constantly talking to yourself because you're, you have to critique what you're, what you're doing. You have to be honest with, uh, with what you're doing. And, and, and then hopefully you surround yourself with enough people who will also be honest with you. But the higher you go in accomplishment, the less, the chances lessen of somebody else telling you what to do. And so what you need to do along the way is empower people where they're doing a lot of the things, not delegate, empower, where they're doing a lot of those, the things that you were doing, which saves you from you doing it, doing it wrong, and them doing it. I don't know if that makes sense, but as you evolve as a leader and as you evolve in your organization, that type of thing should take place. How do you think you've changed over the years as a coach? Well, I think, the, the, first of all, I've learned more as a coach along, along the way, just as a coach, not necessarily a leader and a coach. As far as learning at Duke, about the mid-90s, I made a drastic change when I got sick during the 94-95 uh, season. I, mean, I had to step away for half the season, and I was more of a micromanager uh, before that. And... After that, I started doing things a lot different to where we are today. You know, empowering people or letting them do something gives them ownership. More people should own your team than you. In fact, everybody on your team should own the team. Everybody should be important. Everybody's role uh, should have an ego attached to it. And then if you can coordinate all that together, you'll, you'll be better. And that, that's where I'm at right now. In, in what I do, I feel, I feel very comfortable in coaching and leading in that manner. The time during one of the first practices that LeBron turned his back on you while you were talking to him, mm -hmm. what did you do versus what everybody thought you should have done? Well, first of all, yeah, I, I, I don't like to yell a lot, a lot. I don't yell as much as I did when I was a, a younger coach, but I, I, I never really yell with the with the national team and you know, in LeBron's case it, it, you know LeBron and I have a great relationship well how do we get that we get that from being honest from the get-go in in that particular situation it was you know look at me you know like we need to have eye-to-eye -eye contact you know and in my younger days or if it was someone said what the hell are you doing you know like, like you know it would be a, a huge confrontation 
and we tried, uh, but they're not accustomed to looking at everybody all, all the time. And so it actually became one of our standards. You know, uh, there are 14 standards that our U.S. Olympic team had. It's the way you live, the way you expect other people to live. We have no rules, but we have standards. What are the standards? Well, one of them what came from that is when we talk to each other, we look each other in the eye. Another standard is we tell each other the truth. Uh, a, a, a standard that LeBron introduced to the whole team when we met it was no excuses. You know, never make an excuse. That doesn't mean you don't figure out why you do it. A standard can be not being late, never having a bad practice, having each other's back, being flexible, having a strong face all the time. Remember that you're representing something bigger than you. You know, these are all things that I didn't come up with, we all came up with. And as a result, it was ours. And that's why, you know, our group got along so well together is because it was never anybody imposing my rule on somebody. It was all of us imposing and living our standards. And uh, you only get that, it, it, there's a process to get through there. You don't just say, here are the standards. You have to have situations where you, you know, you, like that situation uh, with, with LeBron, you know, was the cause of us becoming better. And uh, LeBron's really one of our best leaders. How did he respond the first time you told him to look at you in the eyes? Yeah, I, you know, I don't remember exactly. Okay. You know, all I know is it wasn't what he normally did. You know, just like when, you know, a lot of times guys have headsets on and things like that, and they're talking to him. We, our rule is, not rule, our standard is, you know, when we talk, it's just you and me. So whatever you're doing, take that off and now look at me, you're not texting, you're, you're, not, you're not doing any of that, it's me and you. In other words, we respect one another. We respect that time so that uh, if we wanna grow into be something special, we need to really respect one another and we need to really respect each other's time. And all those guys get that, and, and we get it. It's it, it just that it's not done a lot. It's just not done a lot. So there has to be a period of time where we have to get enough situations that, that have occurred to where we have a chance to, to uh, form the standards necessary. What most impresses you about LeBron? Well, LeBron, I, th I think LeBron has, one, he's an incredible athlete. But he, along with his incredible, like he's one of a kind. But along with that, he's, he's brilliant. He's really smart. And he has, I think, incredible leadership qualities because he, he, he can communicate really well. His voice is good. His presence is good. And he has a good value structure. He, he knows right and wrong. Uh, Syracuse University basketball coach Jim Beheim. He's also an assistant for. He's uh, my co. He's a co-coach, not an assistant. He's, okay. He's too good to be an assistant. A, a co-coach of Team USA. I was speaking to him yesterday, and he was talking about the uh, some of the criticism that Team USA received prior to the results actually coming, and some of that was people, many thinking NBA players 
couldn't play together on the team, would be unable to make sacrifices. You yourself have said one of the, or the hardest thing to teach is players, getting them to play together. Right. How were you able to do it? Well, it's a you know, collective effort. We've created a culture, we all have, of excellence, of self-service, of wanting to represent your country, and, 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 uh, and, and building our thing on standards. Like, how are we going to live together? And, you know, the guys have been acceptant of that. I mean, NBA players are, those guys are good guys. They're, they're top-notch professionals. You have, to, you have to relate to them in the way that they deserve to be related to, in an honest, open, professional fashion, but where they also know that they're, you know, this is bigger than them. You know, what we're doing is bigger than any one individual, and therefore every individual is really important in order for us to be as big as we need to be to represent the United States. Uh, tell me about the time, 1992 Dream Team, you're an assistant coach, and Michael Jordan comes up to you and asks for help. Well, it, it's really one of the, the, the great moments for me. I was an assistant coach for Chuck Daly on the Dream Team, and you know, we just won two national championships. You know, you think you're pretty darn good, and all of a sudden you're with David Robinson and Magic and Larry and you know, uh, Drexler and Barkley and Mullen and uh, Ewing and Stockton and Malone and you know, all these guys, Pippen, and then there's Jordan. And uh, it was after our first practice, he, uh, uh, I, was, I felt good because they didn't make a mistake their first practice. And I'm just sitting there and he came over and he says, Coach, yeah, would you please, uh, I'd like to work on some of my offensive stuff, would you please work with me? And yeah, you know, I thought he was coming over to give me a hard time because he's from North Carolina, I'm from Duke, and I actually think it was his way of making me feel comfortable. But he said, Coach, and he said, please, and when, he was when it was over, uh, he said, thanks. And he could have said, hey, get over here, idiot, and, and work with me, and I would have done that. You know, I would have done it, just like a lot of people at, in workplaces will do their job. But then I would have felt, as, as inconsequential and no ego and whatever because it was stripped from me by the, by the main guy. Instead, he gave me a chance to have an ego and then he called me with respect, coach, just by knowing a person's name. He said, please and thank you. In other words, there was no organizational chart where he was the top guy and I'm here on the bottom. It was like this. On his team, everybody was important. And he also wanted, I think, he never said this, but my family is he wanted to make sure we don't do any of that Duke Carolina stuff. We're here with the U.S. team, and we're both going to do this well. It was, it was a tremendous, tremendous thing. And I, I'm not sure he, he knew everything that he was doing. He, he just did it naturally. But that's what I took from that situation. It was, it, it, I try to do my thing all the time now better as a result of that one experience of, uh, of having that, you know, just shooting and coach, please, thank you, we're okay, and, you know, the bar is this way, not that way. I want to run through some notable moments from your Duke basketball career thus far, the first being the 92 NCAA East Regional 
finals. Uh, you're, you're playing Kentucky. Kentucky leads 103-102. Duke calls timeout with 2.1 seconds left. What do you say to your team and your reaction to what followed after that? Well, you know, I'd be lying if I said we, I thought really we were going to win. But as a leader, you have to portray the confidence of saying we're going to win. And you try to get everybody on the same page. So when we called the timeout as they came over to the, to the bench, I looked you know, as they're coming, I said, we're going to win. And when they're on, on the bench, again, we have this eye-to-eye -eye contact, truth thing, trust. And I said, we're going to win. You understand that? We're going to win. Now, again, I'm not saying I'm this prophet or anything like that because I'm not. But you try to put them in a position where they feel that. And then we went through what we were going to do. And, you know, Grant was going to take the ball out. Christian was going to come up. And, you know, if he couldn't get a shot, he was going to hit guys going to the basket. And hopefully you get a shot. In those situations, you want a shot. And, uh, and, and then I asked Grant, I said, can you throw the ball? you know, 75 feet, and he, he said yes. And a lot of times, you, when you ask somebody to do something, they say they'll do it, in their mind, they've already done it. And then I asked Christian, I said, if, if, when you come off the, up from the baseline, you know, will you catch it? And <laughs> Christian said, Coach, if Grant throws a good pass, I'll catch it. And he had a way of, like, breaking the ice. Not that it was funny, but it was, okay, there was another voice in there. And I said, okay, and then he, Grant threw it, and Christian caught it. He wasn't supposed to dribble it, but he dribbled it, and then he hit his 20th shot that day. He, he was 20 for 20, 10 for 10 from the field and 10 for 10 from the free throw line. And so pretty good chance that, you know, to, to go to him at that point. Red was coming up all the time on the roulette wheel, let's put it that way. And that was all that was needed. Duke won as time expired and the rest is history. You played Kentucky again in the 98 yeah. title game. You're up by uh, 17, I think, but then as 10 minutes tick off the clock, Kentucky ends up coming back and winning the game. After the game, everybody's crying on Duke from players to the sports information director to the trainer, and everybody's consoling each other as well. And you said you realized at that point that it was a great year. Well, we, yeah. Well, we were, that 98 was three years removed from me being out a half a year. It was two years removed from being, and we were 13 and 18. It was two years removed at the end of the 96 season from being 18 and 13. In other words, we were 31 and 31 for those two years. And now this group that we are going to try to build our program and our, get, our, get everything back together have put us in a position where we're that close. We're that close. And, but it didn't happen. But it did happen. In other words, I knew with that team and how they all felt that what we had done for the last three years to put us in that position had taken hold. And so the result of the game was not going to ruin what we had built. 
it really confirmed itself. In other words, we should be crying and we should be beyond being consoled because we've put so much into it. And I didn't know just how much we put into it until that moment where I saw what the loss of, of the game, the loss of a chance to win a national championship would do. And as a result, I think our program has taken on another life of excellence and while we were searching for excellence for a couple, couple years there. By the early to mid-90s, there were greater and greater demands on your time. You alluded to this briefly earlier, the 94 disc surgery. How quickly did you realize you came back too soon? Uh, not, not soon enough. Uh, you know, when I, first of all, we had gone to seven Final Fours in nine years. That's a lot. That, that, that's a lot. And, you know, what it produced was a longer season, but also produced an inordinate amount of demands on, on you for, for everything. My, my, my program wasn't set up to handle all those things. And as a result, when I had my back surgery, basically I had my back surgery and we had already started practice. And I went in and I, I had problems with my leg. But when I went in to see a neurosurgeon and they tested me and they had me hop on this leg, I collapsed. And I had what's called a dead foot. And the, the doctor said, I said, whoa, you know, what's, I said, can you fix it? He said, yeah, you better get an operation right now or you can be Quasimodo. You know, I mean, you can walk around, you know. I said, well, let's get the operation. Well, practice had already started. And, you know, he said, you know, you should be out about a month. You know, just give it time and rehab and, you know, after a couple days, you know, again, you, you think you're Superman and you go back. That was stupid to do and nobody was strong enough to beat me from being stupid. Although your wife said uh, when you weren't taking care of yourself, she finally called, made a two o'clock doctor appointment for you, then called you to say when the doctor appointment was and you said, look, I have practice. And she responded by saying, I'm gonna be there at that time if you aren't don't come home. Right. What was your reaction? Well, but she let stupid go a long way because that wasn't right away. It was after a few, after a couple months. Okay. I'm glad she did it. Obviously, it was a great thing for her to do. But basically, I had, I mean, I'm thankful that she did it. Basically, I just got completely run down. I never did the proper stuff to make my back as good as it could be. Uh, I was exhausted, burned out, exhausted, and had not taken care of my surgery. You know, it shouldn't get to that. It shouldn't get to, and when she saw that where it was, and then once I got into it, then I saw it. And then people did step in and say, you're not coming back for the rest of this season. And it took me, uh, it took me a few months, not just physically, but you know, mentally, and just to feel, you know, to 
get passion back and whatever. It took counseling. It took a, a you know it took it took a team of people that are great to help me get back to where uh, I was ready to go again. And I'm very thankful that my school, my family, my wife was committed enough to me, you know, to do that because I wouldn't have been able to do that on my own. Talk about the time you stole coins from your father and what you learned from that. My, my dad uh, would, when he walked around, he had a lot of change in his pocket, would always, you know, jingle. And uh, I remember that I wanted to get some candy, you know, and it cost money. And uh, I said, well, wouldn't be bad. He was, he has so much change in his, in his pocket that he's not going to miss, I don't know, 50 cents or a quarter or whatever it was. And so he used to hang his pants up and I went in and I, I took that quarter. I, again, I think it was a quarter. And I went and I said, he'll never know about it. And it ended up that it was his lucky quarter or, you know, there, and so he did notice it and eventually asked me about it and I, I told him I didn't take it. And then a little bit later, guilt got, and he knew that I did and he pursued it in his own way. And so not only had I stolen the money, but I had lied about it. And basically it was an unbelievable learning lesson for me where he told me, you can't steal, but, but then you really can never lie. And uh, you know, it's one of those lessons in life that uh, then I went to a school at West Point where you don't lie or shoot or steal. So, but that was a good lesson for me. Your father, your father was an elevator operator. Your mom uh, washed floors in the right. evening. I believe you spoke to your mom. You called your mom after every, every game. single game until she passed away. The time that she asked, how did this all happen? Meaning how people view you today, the successful coach, the court that named after you. What do you recall from that conversation? Well, it's a very uh, a, a, a good moment. I think every son or daughter would liken their life to have an opportunity to say to their father and mother, thank you, or how you impacted, how they impacted on your life. I, I never had a chance to do that with my dad because he, he died suddenly from a cerebral hemorrhage when I was a senior at West Point and you know my mom lived to be in her 80s and one of the days when she was down in North Carolina helping us during our camp taking care of uh, my youngest daughter Jamie we were sitting on a porch and uh, there was a TV on and I was on TV and it prompted her to say you know Mike like how did this happen how did this happen and it was an opportunity. And I said, Mom, it happened because of you. I said, ah, come on. You got to be sad. That, you know, an old Polish lady like me, there's no way. I said, Mom, it happened because of you. You know, every day, Bill, my brother Bill and I were, were dressed right. We never knew, not that we were poor, but we knew we weren't rich. But, you know, we didn't have a lot, but we always had whatever we needed. You know, you, you only had two dresses in your closet and, you know, we, you were always organized. Every time you baked, it was always the best. 
you know, you know, you always gave me unfailing love and unconditional support. You know, you created an atmosphere for me that it was impossible to lose. You know, if you had what I had, you would be in my place. And, uh, you know, and it, it's true, and I'm glad that my mom had an opportunity to hear that from me. Hope for her, but mainly from me, you know, for me. I, that, uh, you know, my mom was a huge, huge influence in my life. How much longer do you see yourself coaching for? You know, I don't, I don't like to put time limits on anything. I, I, I'm not physically hampered. You know, my, my age hasn't, you know, there, there are no effects where, they, you know, I, I, where I can't move as well or whatever. I don't have the energy. I have all those things. And if I s saw them lessening to the point where I couldn't give my guys the best, then I would step away. And I, I think it'll be, it won't be spontaneous when I do it, but it'll be, it, it, it won't be planned either. Because, you know, like I don't want a, a clock running out, you know, like he's going to do it for three more years or a year or seven more years or whatever. I don't want to get, get into that. But I, I'm, I'm as energized as I really have ever been, you know, about the game and about coaching. The closest you ever were to becoming an NBA head coach and why you made the decision that Duke University would be the only place you would ever be a head coach yeah. moving forward? I came fairly close in 1990 with the Celtics because Dave Gavitt had taken over and I, you know, it's a storied franchise. I love, I love the Celtic franchise and, and uh, fairly close then. But in 2000, well, I forget the year five or uh, with the Lakers, it was very close uh, because I was 57 at that time and I didn't know, I knew I, was, I got an, another run in me, I don't know how many years, 10 years or whatever it might be. And I, I love the pro game would this be the time? And then the Lakers were unbelievable in what they, how they made their presentation and what they offered. And it too is one of the storied franchises in sport and would have been an amazing honor to do it. And I just could never leave Duke at the end of the day. You know, this is my home. There's, I have so much equity here. And the college game for me and working with young men I don't know. It, 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 it was, I don't know, I, you could, I couldn't give that up. I, you know, selfishly, I couldn't give it up. And it wasn't about money, you know, because uh, it wasn't, a, actually, I, I've never made a decision, my career-wise, for money. You know, if I have to speak somewhere or make an appearance, that can be something for money. But career decisions I've made because it's what I want to really do. And as a result, we've had a great life. I've earned a lot of money, and I'm, and I'm happy. And I'm still happy being the Duke coach and very proud of being the Duke coach. Really a pleasure, sir. All right, thank you. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review and a comment. And while you're there, tell us who you'd like to hear from in future interviews. Plus, you can watch clips from my chat with Coach K at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Thanks for listening.